Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Mark Eatonson. Welcome to Heal NPD. In his essay of anger, the Renaissance philosopher Michel de Montaigne writes about a nobleman named Piso who was known for his passionate anger. When one of the men under Piso's command went missing, Piso sentenced another man under his command to die on the charge of murder. But on the day of the execution, the missing man was found, and the executioner took both men to see Piso. Now everyone thought that Piso would be overjoyed, and that the charges against the condemned man would be dropped, because clearly he was not guilty of murder. But instead, the opposite happened. Piso sentenced all three men to die. The first, because he'd already been condemned to death. The second, the one who'd been missing but was then found, he was sentenced to death because, according to Piso, his going missing in the first place was the cause of the first man's death. And the executioner was sentenced to death because he'd failed to carry out Piso's original orders. So today's episode is about narcissistic rage, and the story of Piso has been cited as an example of this phenomenon. When proven wrong, Piso was unable to see beyond the shame and humiliation that he felt. And the pressure to get away from those feelings caused him to overreact to assert his authority over those who had embarrassed him. Such overreactions are compensatory. They're designed to restore a kind of balance or equilibrium inside the person in response to the threat of internal collapse or fragmentation. More severe overreactions typically suggest a higher degree of disorder and more fragile internal organization. But what actually causes narcissistic rage? Is it a reflection of grandiosity, of entitlement, of arrogance, or is it about an inability to tolerate flaws and imperfections? Well, to some extent, it's usually all of the above. But the heart of the issue is that narcissistic rage is caused by fundamental confusion between the self and other people. And it represents a defense against the feelings of helplessness, humiliation, and shame. For this episode, I'll mostly be referencing the work of Ernest Wolff. He was a frequent collaborator of Heinz Kohut and author of the book, Treating the Self, Elements of Clinical Self-Psychology. Now, according to Wolff, narcissistic rage is directed at self-objects who pose a threat to the self or who have caused damage to the self. You may recall from earlier episodes the term self-object. It's a clinical term for a person, place, or thing, or even a concept that's used to define the experience of self. We all have and use self-objects. Especially when we're young, our self-objects tend to be people, mom, dad, siblings, other caretakers. Self-object experiences from these people from early childhood tend to be tangible and hands-on. They tend to include experiences like holding, caressing, cuddling, etc. The quality of these early interactions helps to define our experience of selfhood. The way we're treated by these self-objects, it tells us who we are and what we're worth. And it's important to understand that early self-objects aren't experienced by children as separate other people. Mom, dad, etc. are actually experienced by young children as parts or extensions of the self. And this is partly because children are incredibly egocentric. They haven't developed a stable enough sense of self to individuate, that is, separate psychologically, from those around them. And that's partly why early relationships have such power over shaping our identity. 
But as we grow and the self consolidates into a more cohesive and well-defined whole, self-object experiences tend to become more abstract. Instead of using other people as self-objects, adults who have a stable and positive sense of self tend to develop abstract self-object relationships with things like their role in a community, their profession, their identification with political ideologies, or their religious beliefs. Since self-objects are experienced as extensions of the self, it's pathological for adults to continue using other people as self-objects like they did when they were children. But in pathological narcissism and NPD, the self has been wounded at an early age, and this wounding has created vulnerabilities and fragilities in the structure of the self. The self is unable to sort of stand on its own two feet. The person tends to rely on the kinds of self-objects that we all used as children. They may need other people to actively admire or idealize them. They may have a basic confusion between self and other, treating other people as extensions of self. The drawback to having such porous interpsychic boundaries is that the words and actions of other people continue to have tremendous impact on the experience of self. Someone with pathological narcissism, or NPD, tends to pursue positive self-object experiences with a kind of relentless pressure, but they'll also seek to eliminate bad self-object experiences with an equal fervor. According to Wolf, when a self-object no longer fulfills the function of sustaining the self and instead is making the self feel helpless, there's a need inside the narcissist to eliminate the offending self-object. It isn't enough to simply ignore the offending self-object. It isn't enough to communicate anger and then let it go. Because the self-object is experienced as a part or extension of the self, it must be eliminated or it will continue to threaten the stability of the self. This attempt to eliminate or expel the offending self-object is the reason for the alarming overreactions and the intensity that often characterizes narcissistic rage. Wolf writes, the self feels helpless, vexed, and mortified, that is, paralyzed, while agitated to the extreme and in deathly danger of losing its integrity. Such a self-state is unbearable and must be altered. The offending self-object of the totally ashamed self must be made to disappear, violently if necessary, even if the whole world goes up in flames. He goes on to say that the origin of narcissistic rage must be sought in the childhood experience of utter helplessness vis-a-vis -vis the humiliating self-object. Such experiences of helplessness are unbearably painful because they threaten the very continuity and existence of the self, and they therefore evoke the strongest emergency defense in the form of narcissistic rage." End quote. Wolf is saying that the origins of narcissistic rage can be found in the very early experiences of helplessness and humiliation that became a part of the fabric from which the self is woven. These early experiences of humiliation or helplessness had such a profound impact because they occurred at a time when the very foundation of selfhood was being laid. They become constant threats to the structure of self-experience. They're easily triggered and difficult to manage. In some ways, it's similar to the ways that traumatic experience can be triggered. And that's because these early experiences of humiliation and helplessness are in fact a form of relational trauma that has disrupted psychological and emotional development. Wounded in this way, 
the self is unable to develop a central stability and a basic positivity. The person is constantly struggling with these poisonous feelings and constantly managing the internal threat that they represent. And this leads to distortions in self-experience and self-image. To compensate for the shame, humiliation, and helplessness, a self-image that is unrealistically positive, even idealized, is often constructed. But it's prone to collapse because it's not based in reality. The threat of collapse then causes the person to press even harder into the grandiosity, to pressure those around them even more to help prop up this false compensatory self-image. But this leads others to eventually abandon the narcissistic person, and that sends them spiraling into the underlying shame and humiliation that everything was constructed to cover over in the first place. Over time, a sort of intolerance to this cycle of inflation and collapse develops within the narcissistic individual. Unable to recognize that the vulnerability lies inside their own self, they continue to rely on those around them to live up to idealized expectations and to deliver idealizing self-object experiences that are designed to keep the self in working order. When a self-object fails to do this, which exposes the narcissist to that old buried shame and triggers that old relational trauma, the response is often narcissistic rage. Now this rage is usually directed at the offending self-object, a spouse, a family member, sometimes a coworker. And this is because self-objects are typically those who are close to the narcissistic individual. It's unusual for that sort of rage to be directed at someone they don't know or at someone they would otherwise seek to impress. The rage can be so overwhelming and so intense because it's born of a fundamental confusion between self and other. The narcissist is holding those around them accountable for an issue that they've been trying and failing to cope with their entire lives. But in a state of collapse, this rage can also be directed at the self, which can be experienced as deficient, humiliating, and ashamed. And this is where self-harm sometimes becomes a significant risk for narcissistic individuals. Such rage can also be expressed in the moment, but for many individuals, there can also be a delay of days, weeks, months, or even years between the offending incident and the expression of the rage or the anger about that incident. The painful memory becomes a slow, boiling resentment. It can be expressed in the form of violent outbursts or coldly calculating destructiveness. It can look like screaming, physical violence, smug callousness, or a cold shoulder that makes the offending self-object feel like they're invisible, unimportant, useless, or barely tolerated. It can also be expressed toward the original offending self-object, the, the person who originally caused the wound in the self, but it's more often expressed much later toward a substitute self-object, someone who fails the individual in a manner that's reminiscent of the original wound. The developers of the Pathological Narcissism Inventory, which is a recent assessment that measures both grandiose and vulnerable facets of pathological narcissism, use the term entitlement rage to describe this phenomenon. Interestingly though, they don't place this index on the grandiose scale. Instead, they see entitlement rage as a reflection of vulnerability. And that's because entitled expectations represent a deficit in the person's ability to recognize the difference between the self and other people. Individuals with pathological narcissism hold other people accountable for their own feelings and vulnerabilities. 
They become enraged when others don't magically anticipate the narcissistic individual's needs, thoughts, and feelings. And this isn't so much because the person thinks that other people should serve them, as it is because the person engages in a sort of constant projection, a constant egocentrism, just like children can be egocentric. They assume that everyone feels the way they do. They assume that everyone sees the world from their perspective. And this assumption is often implicit. If you were to ask someone with pathological narcissism or NPD if they understand that other people have separate perspectives, they would of course say yes. But their actions and assumptions about the world tell a different story. They know cognitively that other people have different perspectives, but that awareness hasn't been allowed to impact their unconscious assumptions, and that's because of deficits and damage in the structure of the self. Entitlement rage stems from this underlying deficit. On the surface, it may seem like the person is angry because you didn't do exactly what they expected or wanted you to do. But if we translate that anger at an unconscious level, it's more like you've made them feel powerless and unimportant and exposed them to incredibly painful feelings of shame and inadequacy that they don't know how to cope with. And because they're confused about where you stop and they begin, their feelings of disappointment become flaws in you that they can't tolerate. So they feel they must punish you, perhaps severely, in order to reestablish an internal equilibrium within their self. Now, I want to be crystal clear. I'm not saying that anyone should tolerate abuse or mistreatment. Just because we can understand the painful and even tragic origins of this sort of behavior doesn't mean it's okay. Every behavior has a cause, and me pointing out one possible explanation for narcissistic rage is not the same thing as me making apologies for it or telling people in abusive relationships to roll over and give the person one more chance. I can't tell you how many times people have confused my analysis of the psychology behind narcissism with me making some kind of apology for abusive mistreatment of other people. If you're being abused, seek help and seek support. If you've been abused and you're no longer in contact with that person or you're in recovery or you're trying to heal, please know that this video is not meant to undermine, invalidate, or quote, gaslight your experience. There are millions of individuals in the world with some variation of pathological narcissism. They aren't all identical. Your experiences may vary. As a society, I think we should strive to view mental illness through a compassionate lens. But as individuals, we're each empowered to do what's necessary within the bounds of the law to protect our rights to physical and emotional safety. I've learned that I need to be extremely explicit about that because there's so much pain and so much confusion out there surrounding this disorder. Okay, so how is narcissistic rage addressed in treatment? Well, according to Wolf, what the self needs is to be understood. However, that doesn't mean that the self needs approval of its rage. It may take a very long time of just soaking up empathic understanding alone before a gradual fading away of the rage takes place. A similar sentiment can be found in the 2020 paper by Glenn Gabbard and Holly Crisp entitled Principles of Psychodynamic Treatment for Patients with Narcissistic Personality Disorder. The self must be allowed to heal, and that healing takes time. It also takes understanding and something called empathic witnessing. 
Part of what makes the wound so intolerable is the feeling of being invisible, unacknowledged, invalidated by the very self-objects who inflicted the wound in the first place. Their refusal to acknowledge the harm done becomes the narcissistic individual's inability to validate or even see that wound inside of themselves. And this is where therapy comes into play. One of the central roles of a therapist treating pathological narcissism is to provide empathic attunement and validation, which is different than gratification. A therapist should not gratify narcissistic rage. They should not agree with it and support its pathological expression. Rather, they should validate the underlying pain that produces it and help the person to gradually be able to recognize the wounded self and to tolerate the self's pain without needing to project that pain onto those around them. And this is a process that really takes two people. But what if you don't have access to a therapist right now? How can you work toward easing the reactivity inside of yourself that results in expressions of narcissistic rage? Well, I'm reminded of a book that I read when I was in training called The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz, in which he advises the reader to never take anything personally. He writes, don't take anything personally. What others say and do is a projection of their own reality, their own dream. When you're immune to the opinions and the actions of others, you won't be the victim of needless suffering. Good advice, perhaps easier said than done. But that doesn't mean you can't begin to prioritize not taking things personally. It'll take some time, maybe a long time. But you can start working on this today, right now. The things that other people do are reflections of their choices, their thoughts, their feelings, their motivations. Almost nobody does anything because of you. That's both good and bad news. It means you're less important than perhaps you feel you need to be. But it also means you don't need to take on the failures of other people, nor do you need to worry that their failure to consider you is somehow a reflection on your own worth. Focus on reinforcing the line between you and others. Make it a conscious practice to try to perceive the separateness of those around you. Your thoughts and feelings belong to you. Their thoughts and feelings belong to them. If you feel ashamed or embarrassed, maybe it isn't because anybody wanted you to feel that way. Maybe those feelings are old. Maybe they go way, way back. And maybe you don't have to keep reliving the trauma in your current relationships. Okay, so that's it for today. As always, please leave comments, questions, suggestions for future topics. And please consider giving this a like or a subscribe if you found it helpful. And until next time, take good care.